oh sorry Nicholas is coming downstairs there yeah we've had some we've had some amazing uh, papers on um, uh, fandom in past sessions um, and it's it's great to be able to carry on this conversation um, now and some really good papers coming up the first one is from uh, Corenza Lewis so Corenza if I can hand over to you um, and you share your screen How's that? Can you um, see that now? Is that working okay? Can you see my screen? Yeah. Yes. 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 Yep. Okay. So um, <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure how to pick up from the discussion before coffee, uh, to be honest. Um, but um, uh, what I was this is a this is a paper that has been fighting not to be given. Um, so I was supposed to give this paper at last year's conference, um, one of those ancient style ones where you actually all came together in a room in one place. Um, somebody, well, some of us will remember those. Um, and my train hit a deer on the way down, so I never made it to the conference. Um, I was then uh, offered to give it again this year. And when I went to check last year's presentation, which was already um, the day before yesterday, I discovered it had vanished, um, at which point I had a uh, mild panic, well, major panic, actually. Um, and I uh, just wondered if this was uh, this this paper is trying to tell me something. Um, but interestingly, I've now had to re redo the whole um, PowerPoint because I couldn't find it at all. Um, and it's it's interestingly different, perhaps, uh, to the paper I would have given last year. Um, so um, I was going to talk about the conference we ran in 2017. Um, really is a way of looking back at um, the impact that it had had then um, and thinking about how the conference has moved on since then. So the conference in 2017, I hosted at, uh, in Lincoln, at the University of Lincoln, um, on pretty much this weekend, uh, Arch, Academic Arches is always on the uh, this, this same weekend. Um, the Lincoln Conference was the, the second one. I'd spoken at the first one. Those of you with our remember, it was a brilliant event then, but very small scale, very much sort of guerrilla academia, literally sort of springing up where it wasn't expected. Um, and there was a huge clamor for another conference and the opportunity to hold it at Lincoln uh, was something I was able to make happen. There was a good reason for having it in Lincoln uh, because Lincolnshire is one of the places that claims to have the, uh, the have been the inspiration for the archers in the first place. And I don't have time to go into that right now. Um, but we increased the whole scale and scope of the conference. We ran it over two days. We had a a, a conference dinner at the Bull um, uh, in the village that uh, was uh, one of the inspirations for the archers, um, and a day and a half of papers. Um, and I think it did set. It established the Archers, Academic Archers, as a returning event annually rather than just a one-off. That's um, right. Marie Martin Inkbarrow. Oh, yes, that's right. Hello. Yeah. Sorry, I can hear people talking. Is that people coming in with a question? Okay, never mind. Um, so the programme, as I said, was was massively extended. Um, it uh, excited a lot of wider media attention, um, uh, talked about in the press. Um, uh, there's uh, Christine's paper here on uh, lemon drizzle cake, which was a, a big... Uh, a big draw um, and in fact even got picked up by Private Eye who failed to get the joke first time round um, and uh, 
elicited this response here saying you're a satirical magazine, you should recognise this sort of thing. But the point it made here was that the whole conference was one long loving piss take done by people who don't take themselves or the archers too seriously. Now, obviously, this morning's discussion has shown how very, very far the conference has moved since then. Um, we collected feedback on the conference in 2017 with an extensive two-page form. So all I'm going to do in this quick 10 minutes that I've got to try and keep to time um, is talk about the feedback and think a little bit about the impact of the conference, what people who are involved in it are getting out of it, and then bring that to today really to think about what are we getting out of it today. Um, so when we asked a range of questions. Um, one of those was, uh, one of the first was, are you an academic? The idea of academic archers, of course, is to talk about research through the lens of the archers, um, but attract a wider audience. And in the in 2017, as you say, as you can see, more than three quarters of the audience were not professional academics. So it really was reaching that wider audience. And this is the in the room participants. We were streaming all of the talks um, uh, online as well, but this the feedback was from the in the room participants. Uh, the question, were you one of the presenters? Actually, the results almost exactly the same. Nearly all of the academics were actually presenting, um, which again has an interest in nearly all of the audience who weren't presenting were actually uh, not academics. So it's clearly working in terms of reaching a, a non-academic audience, very different to the sort of responses you get from an average academic conference. And I did have data from uh, examples of those in the earlier presentation, but I've cut that out for the sake of brevity today. Um, did you contribute to discussions? Interestingly, a bigger proportion of people did contribute to discussions, showing that a number of the sort of, uh, it wasn't just the presenters talking among themselves. And I think that's very, very visible now. Everyone gets stuck into discussions. And actually, this online format seems to be really good at encouraging that. Um, so then we asked some questions about the conference itself. Uh, what a load of rubbish, or did you really enjoy it sort of thing? Um, so the overall rating was incredibly high. Now here we've got, we had a five point sort of Likert scale. Um, uh, so uh, the blue was the top rating, uh, red was the sort of second top rating, green was middle for, um, well, there should be five low at the bottom there. Um, as you can see, they're all in the top two and the vast majority were absolutely top rating it. People absolutely loved the conference. Um, Refreshments, we're asking a little bit, obviously that doesn't apply to today. Well, maybe it does. I'm actually away from home at the moment. My mother has been in hospital with a broken hip since the end of December. So I'm, I'm away from home at the moment. So I don't have the cakes. My family will eat the cakes, lucky old them. Um, uh, so yeah, again, you could see the, the feedback about that. Again, very positive actually, despite the fact that some of the food actually ran out. People had a very positive, generous-minded, generously-minded spirit towards the conference. Value for money, again, very, very highly rated on that. Um, likely to come to an academic archers conference again. This was the huge majority of people tick this. Some, some people tick that box several times to uh, reiterate their enthusiasm for coming to another academic archers conference. Many of you who were at Lincoln may be, may be here today. Um, and then the, the next set of questions were, what did you get out of it? And that was interesting from that sort of impact. We had a series of questions to which you answered whether you strongly agreed or agreed or, you know, disagreed or strongly disagreed or really didn't agree or disagree on a five point scale. 
So um, the vast majority of people agreed that they found something inspiring or interesting or useful. They'd learned something from the conference, um, over 90% uh, agreeing or strongly agreeing. And the vast majority of that blue uh, section of the chart here strongly agreeing. Um, the vast majority of people, again, strongly agreed that they enjoyed hearing about research outside their own area. Um, again, broadening people's perspectives. They really enjoyed that sort of finding out a stuff they really didn't know anything about. Um, enjoying talking to people about the arches. Again, vast majority strongly agreeing or agreeing. And then got some new ideas from the conference. Um, again, the vast majority agreeing or strongly agreeing, more of them agreeing than strongly agreeing, but that idea of having new ideas uh, was, was a very strong theme that came out. And even making new contacts, bearing in mind most of the audience weren't academics, they weren't joining it as academics, they felt they'd made new contacts. And again, a, a majority, not a huge majority, agreed or strongly agreed they'd made new contacts. Most of that through discussion and chat at the breaks and the dinner on the Friday night. And then uh, I'd like to know more about the work or ideas presented, wanting to go beyond what they'd actually heard, being sufficiently engaged and interested with this research, which again, for most people was way beyond anything that they normally worked on or normally knew about. Um, the most illuminating bits really though were the free text feedback. We had over, I think we had around 95 respondents filled in uh, feedback forms. Um, and this is sort of what they look like, just anxiously checking the redacting is working, good. Um, and you can see an example here of the feedback form. So we were interested in whether people were, as I say, academics or not. Um, did they contribute to discussions? Would they like the newsletter? The vast majority said they would, incidentally. I don't know if one's actually been produced. And then you can see, and again, here you've got an example of, of here's the triple X. Would you come to the Academic Archers Conference again? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and here's this, this table here about uh, people's, uh, uh, what they got out of it, the impact of it, with people able to tick on the scale from one to five. And here you see one, one, two, two, three, and this is from someone who wasn't an academic and uh, wasn't one of the presenters. Um, what was most illuminating about that really was the extensive um, uh, sort of written in feedback here. So here, and, and this really, I think, picked up what people really got out of the conference, like the short style of presentations, a range of social topics. Terrific. Amanda, I have to alert you to an ethical issue. Mia Fox has self-identified that that was her feedback form. <laughs> okay, well, I have redacted that. Um, what do you want me to do about that then? I was joking. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Very worried about this sort of thing. All right. Okay. Um, the comments then, and Mia can come back on this, perhaps terrific banter, enjoyed the tweeting, loved the professionals representing their area through something they clearly enjoyed, loved the talk on the music during the stabbing. Anyone who was there will remember that. And if you weren't there, um, these uh, talks are all still on Academic Archers on YouTube. If you go onto YouTube and Google through, you'll be able to find those. Other particular great talks are on diabetes, forensics and penis length, um, all of which were indeed extremely memorable. Oh, I still think Chris Carter should have been included in the talk on penis length. Um, 
and then the impact the conference will have. Um, so definitely heighten my listening. And I should say this is just what I could go through dozens of these with similar themes coming up. It'll heighten my listening to what's going on outside of scripted lines. People see the, the see the broadcast or hear the broadcast in a different way. Happier to talk about um, the arches in relation to social and political areas. I'd recommend the conference to others. Like to attend the kind of conferences on using popular culture as a prism for research, Star Trek, other fantasy dramas. Um, and again, another example here. Here we've got again, someone who was a different person here. Um, again, not an academic, not uh, speaking. Again, they learn something, one, 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 two, one here on the sort of uh, what they gained from it. And again, this range of different, the camaraderie, humor, social media, uh, the review of Ambridge, intelligent, witty people talking passionately about areas of interest, making the connections with Ambridge, be curious, be serious, be joyful. Um, and we'll think about wider society, um, be more aware of conscious and unconscious bias. So again, affecting the way people think, see the world, may actually think in the future. Um, and then new themes, historic environment, archeology, span literature, film, LGBT, huge range of topics when we ask what, what, what would people like to hear about in the future. Uh, quality of chairing, light touch, again, optimizing use of time, sessions well curated, talks complementing each other, and the supportive and well-informed audience as well being highlighted here. So the impact then, I've been doing some research recently using grounded theory to look at the impact of volunteering on heritage sites on well-being. And this has been quite interesting. I'm not going to do a full grounded theory analysis of this, but the themes that come out from looking particularly at the written in text are really illuminating. We've got the enchantment of learning about serious research in a fun, humorous way. We've got knowledge gain being enhanced by this sort of stealth learning approach, a delight in seeing things in new ways and an excitement at widening horizons from this a wonder at the breadth of subjects covered, an enjoyment of sharing an interest with other people, a warmth from feeling part of a community, and nostalgia from memories and remembering past sort of continuity. Um, and complementing that anticipation and optimism for the future, new ideas for things to do, uh, and, avenues to pursue, new interests to investigate, new research directions in the future. And the interesting thing here is we can tie these in very closely to well-being. So um, if you look at the NHS, the five steps to mental well-being, um, which are based on research uh, done for the National Economic Forum uh, by J.D. Akehead and others some time ago, these five steps are connect with other people where we can see how the 2017 Academic Archers Conference achieved that. Be physically active. Well, maybe not quite so much. We should have added in uh, a few more stairs perhaps, or maybe a keep fit session in the middle. Learn new skills, skills in terms of analysis and listening clearly uh, coming through, but also learning new things more generally give to others. People were contributing their ideas, their knowledge and their commentary and their discussion, uh, both in the hall and in uh, informal discussion in coffee breaks. 
and pay attention to the present moment, mindfulness, that fifth step to well-being. People are absolutely focused on what they're finding out about. Um, so what we can say in conclusion, I think, to this is academic arches is good for your well-being. And of course, maybe it should be even available on social prescription. Um, now, this is all from four years ago. It's the fifth years of Academic Archers this year. Um, we're in a different world. Um, we thought the world had shifted on its axis in 2017, just after the Brexit vote, which, of course, the Archers has steadfastly ignored, um, despite possibly its significance for farming. Well, definitely. Um, nonetheless, uh, <laughs> to avoid getting on a hobby horse uh, on my part, um, it will be very interesting to see how things have changed and also to see the impact perhaps of this online uh, uh, approach to academic archers conferences that's been forced on us. So a similar survey, it's slightly shorter because I could only have 10 questions on SurveyMonkey and I would have used Coltricks, but we're just switching over from that. Um, so there is a survey at that link there and it should work if you use the QR code on the screen at the moment. Um, Please take part in the survey, I, survey, ideally at the end of the conference, and then uh, if we write this paper up, we'll be able to compare the results. Put as much text as possible, as qualitative free text descriptions, discussions, ideas about what you get out of it are so valuable. So thank you very much. I hope you found that interesting, that little trip back in time to 2017, and a little bit of a thought about what we're getting out of it today. Thank you. Would you like me to stop sharing now? That was absolutely wonderful, Karenza. You've been very modest. So saying the bit about there was a reason for you to do it, I'm not sure that everybody knows. This is television's Karenza Lewis, famous for being in a trench and throwing herself around in pursuit of uh, relics. But this was, it was a bit of serendipity, wasn't it? Because when you were taking up that chair in the public understanding of science, so when you aren't digging for things and doing your kind of main you know, your, your disciplinary background, your work has been about exactly that. How can we engage the public um, in research? So I just wondered if you'd like to say just a word about kind of the other things that you've been doing around academic archers in that role at Lincoln, because I think it's One thing I always find interesting is when I enthuse about academic archers, someone will always say, oh, well, we could never have it like that for our real research. And it's a bit kind of like, well, we should. Do you know what I mean? Is there anything that you can take from you know, the way that we do it into kind of the more mainstream public understanding kind of world? If that's, if that's a ridiculously hostile question, I apologise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it has a huge amount of potential. I think it's, you know, we've run it, well, you, uh, you and Cara have, have run it on for the next, you know, for five years now, that's half a decade. I, I mean, know, who, would, who, would, who would ever have imagined? Mm. I think it's, you know, there's potential for much, much more, I think. Um, but, you know, nobody has that much time. Um, and, you know, that that way actually that stealth learning stealth engagement guerrilla engagement i think um you know there's so much knowledge out there and so many new ideas that are coming out of research and whether it's a pop-up exhibition in a shopping center on the results of one's excavation on a council estate mm. which is what i did a couple of years ago for the being mm. human festival or whether it's something like academic archers or whether it's academic star trek or academic poldark uh, you know, there's a huge scope for doing that and, and maybe there's a 
a way that we should be trying to find a network of academics who really connect with different sorts of, um, you know, academic uh, EastEnders. Um, <laughs> you know, there is a huge opportunity to give people access to knowledge. And, you know, people who, you know, 50% of the population still don't go to university now. Um, and, but are still interested. Um, yeah, of great way to democratize access to ideas and knowledge and all of the benefits. <laughs> Somebody's mm. loving academic poldark. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking about our next side hustle being academic drag race because we're um, quite, it, we've been watching a lot of RuPaul over lockdown. So, all I, can, I, I know it was a, a real rush through. It's really rich data. And I think it's a, we just said, just saying to Cara, it's a paper that we need to get placed somewhere important because I think it's brilliant. Uh, I'm sorry it's a canter but as I say we've got four papers before luncheon um, so um, thank you so much for uh, that I mean it was just brilliant and we're going to move now on to uh, Laura Smith who um, hasn't presented for us before it's very exciting and her title is The View from Lakey Hill how the Archers empowers, liberates, and enables blind and visually impaired listeners. So Laura, um, yes. your slides are up now on the oh, first slide. Thank you very much. So if I just um, give you a shout when uh, I'd like you to move on, that'd be wonderful, thank you. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Bill, um, can you check if we're getting to yes. Quiet. Am I quiet? Okay. Um, you get your microphone closer to your mouth, maybe the microphone. Is this any better? Yeah. Is that better? Yes. Thank you. Perfect. Wonderful. Okay. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to start just by saying hello because um, I've never moved amongst you before. I've um, I've been a bit of a lurker on the forum for a while now, um, and this is my first actual. Um, uh, time that I'm spending with you. So hello, everybody. Um, I don't think I know many of you, although I probably recognise many of your names from the forum. Um, the only person I have had an interaction with besides Nicola and Cara is, um, is Mia Fox. Um, thank you so much, Mia. Uh, a while ago, I rang in the Dumpty Dum podcast and you sent me such a lovely supportive message after that. So thank you and hello. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, this is my paper, The View from Lakey Hill, How the Archers Empowers, Liberates and Enables Blind and Visually Impaired Listeners. Now, I decided to write this. Um, I myself am a blind listener to the Archers. Um, I've been listening since I was 11 years old and something absolutely captivated me instantly about the world of Ambridge. I was off school it was two o'clock in the afternoon. I've been to a hospital appointment and I was, um, I was really obsessed at the time with uh, recording uh, songs from the radio uh, onto cassette, which seems quite an alien concept now, but um, <laughs> this is how I like to spend my time when I was 11. Um, so I was flicking through the dial, trying to find a, a nice song uh, to put onto my re uh, recording. And as I was clicking through, I came across some people um, who were very uh, in a state of heightened emotion talking about how the family farm was going to be 
distributed upon what I later learned was the parents' death. Now, I didn't know if it was real or, or what, but it, it, it captivated me. This is somebody who lived in Sunderland in the city and had absolutely zero ideas about farming or, or rural life. And for some reason, it just wiggled itself into my brain and it has stayed there ever since. And um, it took me a few weeks to work out what on earth I'd been listening to. Um, but once I'd worked out what times it was on and um, all of that, I have, I've been listening regularly for the last 20 years. Um, in the last couple of years, I realized that there are quite a few blind and visually impaired listeners to The Archers. I wish I could quantify this um, with some sort of um, statistic on how many, but um, there certainly are a, a large representation of the blind and visually impaired community who are uh, Archers listeners, um, more so than I found in any other, um, say, television program or specific you know, film or anything like that. So I, I, I became very interested in what it is about the Archers that draws blind and visually impaired people um, to, to listen and become uh, long-term listeners of the program. Um, if you could move on to slide two, Cara, that'd be wonderful. So the chapter is going to examine the relationship that the Archers has between its blind and visually impaired listeners. So... Slow slide one. Um, if you could move to slide two. Yeah, you keep going. Um, and I'll, I'm just trying to work it out. <laughs> no bother. Okay, so... Yes, so the chapter is going to examine the relationship between the archers and its blind and visually impaired listeners. Um, so, of course, the obvious thing to say is the audio nature of the archers, and indeed lots of radio, um, provides a space where creating one's own idea of place is central to the experience. Um, so the information we're given in our ears is the only thing we are using to interpret what is happening and uh, to create our own ideas of, of how places and indeed people look within that space. Um, now for the purposes of the, of the chapter that I'm gonna be writing, it's gonna be focusing on uh, blind and visually impaired listeners. Now my definition for that is people who've received a medical definition of sight loss. Um, it's a broad spectrum, some people have no sight, which is, is how I identify, I don't have any sight, um, but there are many visual impaired listeners who do have some useful or a lot of useful vision, so it is a big spectrum, but um, for the purposes of my chapter I'm looking at specifically people who've had a diagnosis of severe sight loss, so um, that's people who have no sight or no useful vision. Um, I'm moving on to slide three, Cara, if that's okay. It's there. It's there. Wonderful, thank you. <laughs> the unisensory nature of your radio allows listeners to create individual internal landscapes. This process of visualizing the non-visual can be a great source of empowerment to blind and visually impaired people. So the main thrust of my argument is going to be 
the potential for empowerment that Archers offers to its blind and visually impaired listeners. Creating internal visual landscapes is something that blind and visually impaired people do an awful lot of um, in their everyday lives. So for instance, when crossing a road, a blind or visually impaired listener, uh, person rather, um, <laughs> we're talking about the real world uh, in this part, um, <laughs> a blind or visually impaired person is, is using the auditory information to make a decision about when it's safe to cross. Similarly, when we're in the cinema, uh, watching a film, for any silent moments, we have to interpret what's happening using our ears and imaginations. Um, or for instance, if your three-year-old daughter is telling you that she's sitting on the carpet, I will use my ears to ascertain if she's telling the truth or if she's standing on the back of the armchair reaching for the family heirlooms. <laughs> um, now, you know, this is something where we're very used to doing on an everyday basis, creating and making sense of our lived everyday experience. However, in the real world, there is always the chance that a sighted person can step in and give an objective um, uh, definition of, of what is going on. So for instance, whilst trying to cross that road and keep safe, the friendly passerby can make us aware of a deceptively uh, quiet uh, vehicle lurking along the road. Um, when, we, when we step outside the, the cinema from viewing the film, it could work out that the information presented uh, to, to sighted people doesn't tally with what our experience was of the film. And equally, I could be told in a very somber voice by my partner that my prized 1960s original Beatles figurine has been found in smithereens, Ringo headless. <laughs> very sad state of affairs. <laughs> so that objective part of life, which is defined by uh, by the way that society is set up as the visual part, um, is removed as soon as we enter, enter the gates of Ambridge. I like to think it has gates. <laughs> you can't tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> um, although that being said, I am very much aware that there is a map of Ambridge, and of course there's masses of behind the scenes action that goes on to give some very rooted facts about the the society and the universe. But that isn't quite what I'm talking about within this discussion. What I'm talking about is not geographically fixed landscaping. Um, so not the map. I'm not talking about um, making sense of what is where. And indeed, that is something that a blind person can do anyway, or a visually impaired person, if they're presented with the map in the correct uh, accessible format, they'd be able to familiarise themselves with what is placed where. Much as uh, blind and visually impaired people are very good at um, at uh, learning and familiarising themselves with routes when they're given the correct support. What I'm talking about is the more fluid, shifting parts of everyday life that adds the colour to our lived experience. So I'm talking about whether uh, the Horriban household needs its ivy cutting back whether um, Fallon's dress is made out of the same curtains, uh, same as her curtain material. And uh, for one glorious week, I had Ben Archer riding around in a, a luminous pink car with a paisley patterned bonnet until uh, that was sadly, sadly uh, you know, uh, destroyed for me. 
<laughs> um, if you can move on to the next slide, please, Tara, that'd be wonderful. Um, so. It's taking, it takes a little while to catch up, so you carry on. Slowly get my computer cursor down too to see what we're talking about on this one. Um, okay, so. All visitors are invited to enter and experience the fictional, the fictional universe of Ambridge in exactly the same way, with their ears, their intellects and their imaginations. I would in fact add to this all of their, their other senses because of course, when listening to um, audio information, it doesn't necessarily have to translate into a visual picture that you interpret it as. For instance, I heard um, the actor who plays Jazza, Brian Kelly, he's a blind guy. He, um, he was saying that he visualizes Ambridge or rather interprets Ambridge uh, in a, in a, a, a non-visual way as he's been blind since birth and he doesn't have any visual concepts. So he, he interprets the world of Ambridge um, in a much more uh, multi-sensory way, thinking about how it feels, how it smells, atmospheres, that sort of thing. It's all the same as, as far as I'm concerned, creating an internal uh, landscape, but we're just using our ears and our, uh, our minds to do this. And that, that is very empowering when both blind visually, uh, blind vision impaired and sighted people are doing the exact, going through the exact same process. Uh, next. Next slide. It's up there. Oh, wonderful, thank you. Um, so this process shines a light on, on how many of us living with sight loss interpret and experience everyday lived realities. Um, <clears throat> so I have a bit of a sound bite that I often say in our house is that um, the eyes often get the credit for what a lot of the other senses are doing. Um, and I think that just removing the visual aspect of something enables to draw enables um, people to pay attention of the true capabilities of sound. Um, so this this process of internalizing the, the the universe mimics the process that we do in our everyday lives, blind and visually impaired people, that is, and therefore could potentially, however, on a on a on a micro level, give some insight as to what can be done with our ears. Um, okay, next slide. It's up there. So, but what's special about the arches? Surely um, any radio can do this. Forming, uh, hang on, Right. Um, Cara, would you read out that slide, please, for me? I can do, yep. So, forming connections and thus familiarities with a solely audible universe is a platform to the capabilities of sound. It demonstrates how familiarity, connection, and relationships can develop without sight. Yeah, wonderful, thank you. So 
Yes, yeah, so what is it that's special about the archers in doing this? Um, well, what I would say is that the long running nature of the archers um, doesn't just shed a light on how we can create colourful and interesting and diverse landscapes by just using our ears and our minds. We can also create connections with character and also learn things about people um, just using our ears. Um, and again, this is something that blind and visually impaired people do in their everyday life. Um, so quite often in, in, in my life, I've been asked quite a lot, uh, do I wish I could see my daughter's face, uh, you know, see her smiling, see her expressions, all that sort of thing. And whilst there might be a part of me that might think that might be nice, I honestly don't think I could learn anything more about my daughter than I already know by, by looking at her. And I think the artist does a wonderful job in, um, in exploring how we can respond to people and really get, gain a familiarity and a, and a, a real understanding of, of people and their characters um, without ever seeing them. So for instance, Linda's sniff, we know she's not in a good mood, she's disapproving. Um, it, the slam of a door, she's got shudder at the thought, uh, makes me, uh, you know, we can, we can tell what mood Rob Titchener was in upon him before he'd even spoken. Um, you know, all of these things um, are shedding some light again on how to, how we can connect with people without needing to see them. And I think that is very empowering for blind and visually impaired people because it, um, it gives a validity to our experience. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the well-meaning and very, you know, uh, interesting question of whether I would like to see my child's face, which is, which is often asked by sighted people, if a greater understanding of, of how connection and familiarity isn't just a visual discipline, you know, if some understanding of that was, was uh, a little bit more widespread, maybe fewer of those sorts of questions would be asked. Um, so we're moving on to the last slide now, Tara, please. So, yes. The arches invite it. Ooh, hang on. <laughs> the arches enables blind and visually impaired people to explore a world without barriers, where all visitors are gain, gain equal access, and from and which everybody's view from Lakey Hill is considered equally valid. And that's basically drawing together what the thrust of this argument in this paper is going to be about. It's it's basically having a look at how the removal of objective um, parameters really liberates blind people to have a voice which is rooted in, in truth. There's no, there's no arguing with what I can see from Lakey Hill. Um, you know, how, how beautiful the flowers are, what sort of flowers grow there, um, you know, whose car is passing by. There are thousands upon thousands of interpretations of that, and they're all equally true. And that is the end, I believe. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant. Do people want to unmute so they, we can actually hear the applause? <laughs> <laughs>
That was fantastic. And thank you for bearing with, with me with the slides. My computer just seemed to be on a bit of a go slow. So I did have to jump in and out of the, of the screen share, but we, we got there in the end. You did see everything. So thank you very much. Um, Dr. Nicola Hedlam has a very academic question for you, Laura, if that's okay. Oh, um, and that is, who, who is the best looking person in Ambrose? <laughs> oh man. Oh gosh. Mm. So interesting. This is a blind lady. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Mm, oh, wow. I wish I'd been presented with this a long time ago. It's very big and very important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think. I think that. Um, Oh, you know what? I'm so biased because uh, I, well, obviously, but I, uh, I, the characters I like are the characters that are beautiful. Um, so, uh, Jazza is absolute, an absolute babe, <laughs> regardless of whether he's in his adamant costume or his, uh, his kilt. Um, I know that's a bit controversial. I've seen some threads with some very anti-jazzer feelings but he's he's a complete star um and tracy's an absolute babe and uh lily i think lily is beautiful um in a very classic way <laughs> and i think jim lloyd would have been rather dashing in his time and um and still is and yeah i agree i, I agree with all of those actually i think very good well, alistair, alistair man alistair obviously Absolutely. Alistair has her own answer to this question because she thought that Charlie Thomas was just like, oh, babe. Goodness, yes, absolutely. I'm pleased he left because I was a quivering wreck after everything. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Right, on that beautiful high note of the mention of Charlie Thomas, uh, we will now go over to Tim with this wonderful story that has been growing over the years of academic archers. Hello everyone, uh, thanks. I, I'm starting my timer, I have five minutes. If you hear Barwick Green in the background, of course that's my ringtone, it means my five minutes are up. Uh, I'm Tim Versalotti, uh, Professor of Political Science at Western New England University in Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, I, this is just a quick pitch for a chapter I'm working on for the next book on fandom. And I'm drawing on my experiences teaching a course on English villages. I mentioned it at uh, Reading last year and got a lot of great tips for villages to visit when I returned with my students in June, which of course didn't happen. The course shifted online uh, and I've taught it, I'm teaching it again in the classroom this semester. And I hope to come and uh, with the students at some point to visit and uh, visit uh, the villages that uh, some of my academic archers friends have suggested. But let me say a little bit about the course, a little bit about the lessons I'm drawing about using the archers in teaching and in particular uh, in Massachusetts, um, in America where uh, students are less accustomed to the genre of radio drama as well. Um, radio drama really disappeared from the airwaves in America in the early 1980s. Uh, the last vestige of it was the CBS radio mystery theater, 
which was an anthology program that aired weeknights on the CBS radio network. But since then, really not a whole lot of radio drama here. Um, uh, although we're seeing the art form revived a bit in podcast uh, uh, form. So this course is in our global cultures curriculum. It's introducing students to English villages. I the reading list is a mix of a couple of uh, great books on the history, politics, social conditions, and contemporary life in English villages. Uh, Tom Fort and Martin Wainwright are two of the authors I'm using, both former journalists. Uh, who just cover all sorts of aspects of English village life. I uh, match that to illustrative episodes from the archers in what I call a constructed year. That's a concept we use in content analysis where you pick uh, from various years to get one complete set of observances, uh, in, uh, episodes, in this case, village celebrations. So I'm introducing the students to Burns Night at the Bowl, pancake, uh, the pancake races, uh, the village cricket season, uh, the village faith, the uh, Hollerton Silver Band, the Flower and Produce Show, and on. I'm also drawing from chapters from the first three Academic Archers books, which is a terrific source of um, information and analysis as well. And then um, I'm also teaching the students how to listen to find Laura's presentation, really uh, dovetailing nicely with what I'm learning from my students. If you've got a university age student, he or she or they are often uh, using multiple screens to consume media and what my students are learning through experience is you've got to focus, shut off all outside uh, uh, sources other than the sound that you're hearing. And uh, that has been a real revelation to them. Um, uh, I've also been asking them, who are your favorite characters? And so uh, they're, they're not uh, getting sort of a, a, a daily diet of the archers, the links are there, but I'm having them listen to classic episodes uh, from recent years and from further in the past. And the, the fan favorites so far among the students are Helen for uh, uh, getting through what she got through with coercive control, uh, Rex Fairbrother, uh, and um, interestingly, Jill Archer, uh, one student said she has a soothing voice, uh, which I'm sure will generate all kinds of discussion among fans. They also love that she got arrested. Uh, uh, big, uh, big points to Jill for getting arrested. Their least favorite fan uh, uh, character is Toby Fairbrother for his self-absorption. And, and I'm sad about this because I, I don't agree with this assessment. They don't like Linda Snell, the pre- Ray Gable's explosion, Linda Snell, they feel she's bossy and unyielding and I'm trying to bring them around because uh, she has emerged as just an extraordinary person, especially since um, uh, last spring. Uh, but it's a work in progress, a lot of lessons to learn, a lot of fun to have as well in the classroom. The students say it's like diving into the middle of a novel. How do we catch up? 
And I say, well, uh, most, that's how most of us got started. Very few of us are still around who were there at the very beginning, although I know uh, there are uh, folks who remember the beginning, but uh, most of us are coming in mid-story as it is, and you plug in, you catch up, and the students are finding that as well. Um, that's it. That's my pitch. Uh, I thank you for your time. If you have ideas or thoughts about the course, I'm very eager to hear them, and uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be part of this again. Tim, we just love you, and it is so fun now. It's so fantastic. Um, so particularly when Charlotte Higgins wrote her article, and I was like, you're already on the curriculum. She was like, oh my God. Yes, indeed. <laughs> She's on the syllabus. Uh, we do listen to some excerpts from Dum Dee Dum as well. The hard part is keeping the material manageable. There's mm -hmm. so much out there. And are they, in general, are they Anglophiles anyway? Or is it like, I, I always wonder about your students. Are they like... There are, yes. And this course filled, it had a waiting list and my courses never have waiting lists when I'm teaching about <laughs> politics. Um, but students have exposure uh, through uh, popular culture, through TV in particular, and uh, come in with the misconception, well, I speak the language, so how hard could this be? And uh, of course, uh, I open their eyes to the common cultures uh, united by a different language uh, as well. So, yeah, there is some familiarity. Amazing. Okay. We obviously could talk about this longer, but we've totally messed this session up. We've got far too much content. I know you're supposed to be having your lunches, but we're going to turn now to Harriet Samuels. And Harriet's a bit of a, a bit of a different find, as it were, because she had written this up, this article up, and we found it. And basically, we've been trying to get her to do something with us for months and months. And we are delighted to recommend um, this paper, which you can seek out afterwards. It is so, as you all know, the Re the Lincoln Conference, the book within a book of Custard Colberts and Cake, had the Helen and Rob storyline comprehensively analysed. And Harriet Samuels is the Archers, the Radio, Violence Against Women, and Changing the World at Tea Time. We are all changing the world at tea time. So Harriet, if you want to share your screen, that would be amazing. You're Is it okay if I just speak? I, I did have slides prepared, but I think I might just overrun if I use them. So Darling, whatever, I, whatever you're comfortable yeah. with. I mean, I'm, okay. yeah. I, I think mixing it up, like definitely some talks without slides is good. Okay. All right. So um, I'm just, hello, everybody. I realise I'm the slot before lunch, so I'm going to um, try to be brief. And um, as Nicholas said in her introduction, I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, a paper I wrote um, that came out um, of obviously my uh, you know, 20 years listening to the Archers, but also my obsession with the Helen and Rob storyline um, and its brilliance and how it fitted in with so many interests of mine as a as a legal feminist um, and as someone who's very interested in civil society issues as well. So um, I'm not I'm not going to remind everyone of the story because amongst fans I, I know we all know the story very well. But um, the story essentially uh, focuses on um, a particular aspect of um, domestic violence, a psychological element, and to some extent the economic element, and it. It dovetailed with a uh, introduction um, of the law 
in in uh, England and Wales on coercive control. So seven, section 76 of the Serious Crime Act of 2015 um, introduced the actual the actual crime of uh, coercive control. Um, and the sort of conduct or behaviours that were included were things that we all heard um, Helen experiencing, um, isolating a person from their friends and family, and monitoring their time, taking control of their life, what they wear, etc., um, and threats to hurt them or a child, a disclosure of information. So we kind of saw um, most of those things. And so what I wanted to focus on was the impact of the um, Rob and Helen storyline. So just reminding people of the impact that it, that it had. Um, so these are some of the things that were reported. So calls to the domestic helplines run by Refuge and, and Women's Aid, the two main charities, increasing by uh, 20%. There was a, a fundraising page for Just Giving which um, raised over £140,000. It, it may well have been more than that. The drama made the front page news in uh, some of the quality and tabloid newspapers as well. Um, and Women's Aid and, Aid and Refuge um, on the mainstream media being interviewed on uh, main news programmes about domestic violence. And it also, and I think this is really important too, it captured the imagination of the legal community. So if you went onto uh, websites for solicitors firms and uh, barristers chambers, you'd often see commentaries on um, the Helen and Rob story and the family law implications, the uh, custody issues around uh, Henry and care issues and domestic violence issues. So issues around divorce. So lots and lots of um, you know, blogs, blogs and commentaries on that. Um, the issue was um, raised by Lady Hale, who was then uh, president of the Supreme Court in her sp extrajudicial speeches on domestic violence. And it also crossed over um, towards the end of the storyline with the Sally Challen case, which is a case about um, um, a woman who had uh, killed her husband and um, who later on um, her conviction was overturned. Um, or was rather commuted to manslaughter on the basis that um, she'd been coercively controlled. So there's all sorts of um, a crossover with, with real life. And it is, essentially was part of a, I, I'd say a national conversation that occurred on, on domestic violence. Um, and I explore some of these issues um, in my paper and talk about um, the fact that uh, politicians also became involved in, in the discussion. And there's a quote from Sean O'Connor who, the, the editor at the time who said um, they visited um, the House of Commons with Women's Aid and Refuge and he said at the end of the discussion we have all these MPs captive in a room asking how do you, how to change things it, it's extraordinary so um, that was the, the impact and so where my um, paper or where my interest came in um, the angle that I was looking at was the debate amongst legal feminists um, about the utility of law. So there's a long-standing debate within uh, legal feminism about law and about how useful is law in bringing about social change. And one particular feminist scholar, Carol Smart, in the 1980s talked about the idea that, you know, law was rather overblown, that we use law too much. It promises a lot, but it delivers very little. Um, 
and other uh, feminist scholars like Rosemary Hunter um, saying, well, you know, um, it's really important to enact laws, uh, issues around domestic violence or rape or violence against women, but the reality is that they're very prone to being interpreted and understood through non-feminist lens, and therefore the, the law just falls on stony ground and it doesn't have the kind of impact that, that, it, that it might have. So um, this um, led to... Um, my interest in the archers and thinking about the Helen and Rob story about how um, in the Helen and Rob story and the law on coercive control was that at the same time as you had the law being introduced, you also had a, a real attempt to change the social discourse to change people's understanding of, um, of domestic violence and how it works. And, and I thought it was, it was, it, it's, been shown to be quite a useful case study of how to change people's understanding. Um, and so for, for several years, the, the drama enabled the listeners to um, understand how everyday behaviours might be classified as gendered harms and, and dealt with through the law. So uh, the next part, I, was, I, I then went on to look at how the archers was used, how this episode in the archers was used to try to win people's hearts and minds. So I had some discussion about um, using um, the radio, using entertainment as a method for education. And I, I'm gonna sort of sk skip over that bit um, and go on to um, talk about more about how the, um, how the uh, women's aid and refuge, about how feminist lawyers and activists and campaigners to use the story to try to sort of circulate a feminist knowledge and to change the, the dominant um, discussion or discourses. And so academics might talk about this as reframing issues, introducing new iterations or vernacularization. Um, and I think um, a lot of this was done through the two main charities becoming involved, the two main campaigning groups becoming involved, they advising the script editors, um, advising the actors, um, introducing them to uh, re real life uh, survivors of domestic violence and relatively sympathetic editor um, in the form of Sean O'Connor who had some um, track record of this. Um, so how did, how did um, this process um, go about? How did it happen during the, um, during the broadcast? So I think, um, so one thing to point out is that, so Helen during the, during the episode, Helen can't name what's happening to her. Um, but as the uh, program is progressing, you have organizations like Refuge and Women's Aid on Facebook and on Twitter naming it for her, right? They're, they're saying, yes, this is coercive control. This is domestic violence. This is very, very common behavior. So they're actually naming um, the, the conduct. I think there's something Nicola was talking about earlier in her paper, right? You have to actually be able to name something. You have to be able to identify it before you can talk about it and, and sort of bring bring about bring about change so th this kind of um online activism that was going on at the same time as the um as the broadcast uh, referred to often as discursive activism so the, the groups were acting as a bridge um, and they were explaining very effectively um why helen couldn't leave stop asking i think one of the slogans for women's aid was stop asking why helen can't leave stop asking why why she doesn't just leave 
um, Rob's manipulation of the, uh, you know, of the whole village and the family and the gaslighting. So again, they're explaining these are very common behaviours. Um, they were interjections by uh, survivors of, of uh, domestic kind of domestic violence as well. So this whole sort of online discussion, the use of the hashtags and the slogans, lightening the mood in places as well, which I think was very important, like the solidarity with Helen, which was partly, um, you know, with the with the um, the broadcasters and also um, the uh, women's aid joining in. The timing of the story was very fortuitous because it occurred at the same time as there was this um, law reform going through and the longevity of the story. So it enabled it to, to have this sort of drip drip effect. And we, we began to understand very, very slowly what was, happen, what was happening. And the fact that, um, that um, Women's Aid and Refuge took a very a feminist stance and using explaining what was happening in very uh, gendered language, explaining the issues of power and control and, and, and the broader issues. So they basically um, could be described as inserting themselves into all the, all the available spaces. Um, so um, on, one, in one, on the one hand, it's a very, it was a very successful um, episode in terms of publicity, in terms of the conversation being started, in terms of gradually shifting people's understanding. I think it was also very important because the archers um, and it's it's a soap opera, so in one sense it's lowbrow entertainment, but it has um, I think uh, it's described as having a highbrow audience. So you're reaching judges, you're reaching lawyers, you're reaching other legal actors who are involved in the justice system, um, who and you're you're hopefully beginning to shift some of their understanding as well. So it, it, I think it was a very significant episode um, as a tool for social change. So um, just to um, just to conclude with a few words, using the archers as a tool for social action. Um, and we've seen that with the recent modern slavery um, storyline as well. So I think my uh, I, I end with thinking about proceed with caution, because obviously there are a lot of issues that were omitted in the Helen and Rob story, the issues of finance, uh, legal aid, the closure of uh, domestic violence hostels. Um, Women's Aid did raise those issues, but they said that they still wanted to participate because they felt that there was a universality to domestic violence, which also means it affects people from all different kinds of backgrounds. So, so they, they were aware of it, but I think it's something that has to be very, very careful of. Um, the lack of diversity of the characters in the archers. The archers is very white. It's, it's almost every time I listen to it, I, I'm always thinking, well, you know, where are the minorities here? There's not very many. So that also raises issues if you're using uh, as a tool for social change or, or, or action. Um, I think there was one um, black character in the Helen and Rob story who was um, Helen's cellmate, but not very much. Um, that wasn't really very well developed. And obviously the priority given to um, drama and the, the temptation to sensationalize. So, so just, just to cl close, I'll just end, end with a quote from my article, which is basically that this, the episode demonstrates the potential of popular culture to portray the complexities of domestic violence and provide alternative explanations for victims' conduct. And for legal feminists, um, it, it kind of overcomes concerns that law might be ignored or undermined. Um, and um, that, that um, in inimical narratives that impair laws implementation um, might be used. Um, so I think that um, it, it is an interesting, it was an interesting idea, interesting episode. And um, that's so, yeah, I'll end my talk there so we can enjoy lunch.
Okay. Thank you so much, Harriet. And as I say, it's a slightly weird order. So sometimes we have work which is developing and then will be published, but yours is already out there in the world. So, so the, yeah, if I will circulate the links for those that would like to read the feminist law perspective on that. And we're just so pleased that you could join us today um, and give that remind us of the impact, actually. Thank you. Exactly. So, um, I, I, as I say, we overdid it in that session. So, um, we basically have about 30 minutes now before um, going live to spiritual home for the yoga. And I tell you what, this was almost a bit of a joke, but some of us in lockdown have become so reliant on yoga in order to kind of get the equanimity to go on. Um, I really recommend um, the yoga teacher. I don't know if she's already joined us. She is my sister, Kate Valentine, who has, she's trained in all aspects of yoga, but she's a real expert in the um in the really hardcore Bikram stuff. But as you see from your packs, she's devised a very special chair yoga for us to do. And we'll be doing that at two o'clock. So please do come back promptly, even though it's not a massively long break. And if you want to keep talking, that's fine. We did talk about pushing you into breakouts, but I think probably, you know, it's, it's yeah, we'll just keep going. Also one thing <laughs> before you go, at our usual conference, those of you that have been before will know this, we usually send around a couple of bits of paper and ask you all to write down how many years you've been listening. And we'd like to do the same again this time. And the only sort of bit of paper we've got really is the chat room. So whilst you're over lunch, and whilst if we can kind of keep the chat a little bit quieter, but could you all put in the number of years you've been listening and then we'll try and toss it up. Okay, so chair yoga at two, and then we'll go into our next uh, session for the afternoon at um, 2.15. And then of course, we're traveling over to the orangery and to the tea room for our last session of the day. So see you in a bit, everyone. <laughs>